Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Pay-Per-View, in which I review current events in newspaper articles and place them in their true context. And the first subject of this episode is UFOs. This is in the Daily Mail. Exclusive crashed UFO recovered by the US military distorted space and time, leaving one investigator nauseous and disoriented when he went in and discovered it was much larger inside than out, attorney for whistleblowers reveals. A crashed UFO recovered by the US military distorted space and time and was bigger on the inside, claims a top attorney involved in bringing UFO whistleblowers to Congress. Bigger on the inside. I've heard that somewhere before. Daniel Sheehan says he was told the mind-boggling tale by a whistleblower who allegedly took part in an illegally undisclosed program retrieving crashed non-human spacecraft and who has now briefed Senate Intelligence Committee staff. The lawyer's story is the latest in a series of stunning claims of UFOs in the government's hands which began on Monday with an on-camera interview of former senior Air Force Intelligence Officer David Grush alleging that the US government possesses multiple crashed non-human craft. The Department of Defense says it has not discovered any verifiable information to support any of the claims, but Sheehan has been helping bring whistleblowers like Grush to Congress in an attempt to expose what he believes is a government cover-up of encounters with extraterrestrials. The attorney told DailyMail.com that one alleged recovery recounted to him by a supposed crash retrieval program insider involved a 30-foot saucer partially embedded in the earth with some fantastical properties. They tried to hook a bulldozer to it to pull it out, and it pulled out a shape like a pie slice, almost like it was part of the way it was constructed, Sheehan said. When it came loose a couple of feet, they stopped immediately. They didn't want to destroy the integrity of the machine. They had a guy go into it. He got in there and it was as big as a football stadium. It was freaking him out and started making him feel nauseous. He was so disoriented because it was so gigantic inside. It was the size of a football stadium, while the outside was only about 30 feet in diameter. Sheehan said that space was not the only warped dimension around the craft. He staggered back out after being in there a couple of minutes, and outside it was four hours later, he said. There was all kinds of time distortion and space distortion. The article continues. Physicists have theorized that propulsion of an advanced craft theoretically involved warping space-time around it to negate the effects of gravity, but Sheehan declined to give further details, including a location and date of the incident, and said he was unable to provide evidence for the claims. The lack of details, documents and photos are leading skeptics to dismiss as tall tales the stories of off-world UFOs stored by secret government programs. Military intelligence officials who have voiced their support for Grush since he came forward publicly point out that he has placed himself at considerable risk if he is lying, as all these claims have been submitted to the Department of Defence and Intelligence Community Inspector Generals on penalty of perjury. Jim Shell, a former chief scientist of the Space Innovation and Development Center at Air Force Space Command, wrote on LinkedIn in support of his former colleague Grush. I will vouch for the integrity of Dave Grush. Getting to the bottom of this is elusive and problematic, to say the least. I will assert no matter the conclusion of extraterrestrial materials or not, the DOD and IC security apparatus is in trouble and unwitting accomplices are fostering an abusive system. He wrote, a former National Reconnaissance Office contractor, Jeff Nevin, replied, Same here, Jim. I worked with Dave for years. She and Seb Grush, 36, had given scores of classified documents and even photographs to the DOD Inspector General. 
He's given them over 100 classified documents, but he has not been able to show all of them to all the staff in the Senate Intelligence Committee because some don't have the adequate clearances, the lawyer said. The problem is that the people who have these kinds of clearances are part of the people who have been concealing it for 75 years. A spokeswoman for Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner declined to comment. Like Sheehan, Grouchy's claims so far have all been second-hand, recounting what he was told by alleged crash retrieval program insiders while he investigated UFOs for the Pentagon. But in an interview this week with French newspaper Le Parisien, he alluded to potential first-hand knowledge too. Journalist Gail Lombard asked if he had seen any exotic gear with your own eyes, and Grouch replied, I saw some very interesting things that I'm not allowed to talk about publicly right now. I don't have approval. Grush is not alone in his disclosures, according to senior intelligence officials. On June 3rd, former top defence intelligence official Christopher Malone wrote an essay for Politico revealing he had referred four witnesses to the government's UFO investigation task force, the Order Main Anomaly Resolution Office, who claimed to have knowledge of a secret US government programme involving the analysis and exportation of materials recovered from off-world craft. Well, Christopher Malone comes from the Malone family, which is one of the world's richest family, so it's notable that he's involved. Nobel Prize nominee CIA scientist Dr. Howard Puthoff, who worked in the government's 2008-2012 to UFO program called AAWSAP, told DailyMail.com in April that he had briefed Congress on classified information about UFO reverse engineering programs and newer whistleblowers who had worked in the alleged programs. Michael Schellenberger, author and founder of news site Public, reported several unidentified intelligence sources who claimed they had seen credible and verifiable evidence that the government or military contractors have at least 12 alien spacecrafts. Public's report said some of their sources were the same people who briefed Grush. Every five years we get one or two recovered for one reason or another from either a landing or from either a landing or that we catch or they just crash. Well, one alleged whistleblower told the publication, I know of at least 12 to 15 craft. A defence contractor told public there were at least four morphologies, that means appearances, different structures, six were in good shape, six were not in good shape. There were cases where the craft landed and the occupants who left the craft unoccupied. There have been high-level people, including generals, who have placed their hand on the craft, and I would have no reason to disbelieve them. Engineering and military news site The Debrief, which published the first interview with Grush on it, also included a quote from a retired army colonel who worked with Grush on the government's UFO task force agreeing with his claims. His assertion concerning the existence of a terrestrial arms race occurring sub Rosa over the past 80 years focused on reverse engineering technologies of unknown origin is fundamentally correct, Colonel Carl Nell told The Debrief. Sheehan has experience with legal wrangling involving classified material. He participated in landmark cases including the Pentagon Papers in 1971 and the Watergate break-in of 1972 and is credited with launching the investigation into the Iran-Contra scandal of the 1980s. But for years he has turned his attention to UFOs, working closely with whistleblowers to peel back state secrecy on the topic. He represented Lou Elizondo, who helped run the government's UFO office until 2017, and a whistleblower complaint to the Inspector Generals of the Defence Department and Intelligence Community alleging a cover-up of military encounters with unidentified craft. And he says he has also cancelled Bruce, though he does not officially represent him. McCullough's firm Compass Rose posted a statement on its website saying it had successfully concluded its representation of former client David Grush. The firm filed a narrowly scoped whistleblower disclosure with the Intelligence Community Inspector General and Associated Personnel Matters and had represented Mr. Grush since February 2022. The statement said, Compass Rose took no position and takes no position on the context of the withheld information. The whistleblower disclosure did not speak to the specifics of the alleged classified information that Mr. Grush has now publicly characterised and the substance of that information has always been outside the scope of Compass Rose's representation. 
So we're seeing more and more now military whistleblowers and intelligence officials coming out and saying they've seen craft and they found other things that would lead them to suspect that they could be of off-world origin. And all I would say is that something to be aware of is that in the 1990s, a Canadian investigative journalist called Serge Monas talked about what he called Project Bluebeam, which is, he said, a a plan to stage a fake alien invasion to justify world government and a world army to meet the threat of a alien invasion. And we need to be very streetwise if this unfolds, because a world government and world army is exactly what this global cult that I write and talk about has wanted all along. Now, you know, when you consider the fact, I've talked about this in the podcast before, that According to conventional science, the electromagnetic spectrum, the light spectrum, is said to be about 0.05% of what exists in the universe. And visible light, which is, some say 0.5%, but either way it's fractional. And visible light, which is the only part of that light electromagnetic spectrum that we can see, everything we see now is within visible light, is a fraction of the 0.005% or 0.5%. And that's all we can see. So we don't even see 1% of what exists in the universe. So the idea that there could be other lives beyond what we see is kind of obvious, really. But at the same time, we need to be very discerning on the theme of an alien invasion. If you believe aliens exist and that they could invade one day, then when a military whistleblower is talking about it, we need to question it. And when you're being told what you want to hear, you need to question it even more. The whole theme of my new book, Reality Check, is to question everything, and that's what we need to do. Some of this craft that we see is not necessarily, although despite what we're being told, is not necessarily always off-world origin. If the plan is to stage a fake alien invasion, then it's far more likely that the craft originates with the military intelligence, and then the military announces that they found an alien craft, when it's all they found is what they already have. And it's flown actually by the military to give the appearance of a UFO. Subject for this episode connects into the alien or at least non-human subject of the last story, as I explain in the new book. This is uh, in the Daily Mail. Godfather of AI says he feels lost over his life's work as he joins forces with experts to issue an urgent warning. The technology could lead to the extinction of humanity humanity as we know it anyway. One of the Godfather's artificial intelligence has admitted he feels lost over his life's work. The Nobel Prize winning computer scientist Professor Yoshua Bengio has urged that anyone building AI products should be registered and receive ethical training. Another point there, in terms of the the AI that is designed to be the full-on AI, we've not invented that. That already existed. That's not being made by humans. It's a consciousness. And I explain more about that in the new book. The article continues. Uh, He joined dozens of experts who penned an open letter warning that AI could lead to the extinction of humanity and should be a global priority alongside catastrophic events like nuclear war and pandemics. Well, there are no pandemics, but anyway... It is challenging, emotionally speaking, for people who are inside the AI sector, Professor Bengio told the BBC. You could say I feel lost, but you have to keep going and you have to engage, discuss, encourage others to think with you. 
Uh, the letter put forward by the Center for AI Safety was signed by senior bosses at major tech giants like Google, DeepMind and Anthropic. Another groundbreaking scientist, Jeffrey Hinton, signed the letter too as he sensationally resigned from Google. Uh, he warned that human extinction could be on the horizon if AI got into the wrong hands, adding that it had progressed farther quicker than anticipated. But it depends what level of AI you're talking about, because where they're going, where this is planned to go, already exists. It's just about making it seem as if there's a process of steps towards it when it's already there. But if you just introduce it in its full-on self-aware, fully conscious form, then people are going to ask, where did it come from? So you have to say, oh, it came from all these steps that you saw before. In the face of these concerns, the article says, Professor Benjo again urged that tracking the growth of AI is key to ensuring its usage are safely controlled. Well, that's not the idea. He continued, governments need to track what they're doing. They need to be able to audit them. And that's just the minimum thing we do for any other sector, like building airplanes or cars or pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Did he stick the last one in for a joke? We also need the people who are close to these systems to have a kind of certification. We need ethical training here, computer scientists. Last week, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that guardrails are needed to protect against existential threats while also driving AI innovation. Although many have raised concerns of AI generating disinformation and its potential uses for weapon development, it can accurately perform life-saving tasks within the medical field. See, there's, I'm in favour of technology if it serves humans rather than humans serving it. Uh, Sunak retweeted the Centre for AI Safety's statement, commenting the government is looking very carefully at this. Last week I stressed to AI companies the importance of putting guardrails in place so development is safe and secure, but we need to work together. That's why I raised it at the G7 and will do so again when I visit the US. But politicians are clueless about what's going on in Silicon Valley, which is driving the tech advancement, as is Silicon Valley in Israel and China. Politicians don't have a clue what's going on there. And it's being driven ultimately by the military intelligence networks which created Silicon Valley. And that level of the military that's driving it is above government. It's above Sunak, it's above Biden, although that's not difficult. So whether Sunak says they're looking at it or not is irrelevant. Professor Benjo added that it's never too late to improve amidst the current fears. It's exactly like climate change, he said. Well, not really, because AI is actually a real thing. Human caused climate change. We put a lot of carbon in the atmosphere and it would be better if we hadn't, but let's see what we can do now. Nonsense, but the article continues. The professor's thoughts were also acknowledged by Sir Nigel Chabot, chairman of the London-based Open Data Institute. While he acknowledged that AI is a force for good, Sir Chabot stressed that existential challenges are being faced. He told the BBC, we don't quite know how to understand the absolute consequences of this technology. We all have in common a recognition that we need to innovate responsibly, that we need to think about the ethical dimension, the values that these systems embody. We have to understand that AI is a huge force for good. We have to appreciate not the very worst, but there are lots of existential challenges we face. Our technologies are on a par with other, with other things that might cut us short, whether it's climate or other challenges we face. But it seems to me that if we do the thinking now in advance, if we do take the steps that people like Yeshua is arguing for, that's a good first step. It's very good that we've got the field coming together to understand that this is a powerful technology that has a dark and light side. It has a yin and yang, and we need lots of voices in that debate. Well, it's a double-edged sword now. There's not designed to be a good and bad, ultimately, where this is going. It's not about... See, this is, the, this is the point. It's not about, can we put safeguards in place and we do this, let's think about it, and we do that. When the finished article already exists, 
all this now is just for public consumption. And I would suggest strongly, as I explain why in the new book, that this is designed to be a very malevolent AI. So all the safeguarding and the thinking about how can we mitigate against this is irrelevant. That's just to sell it to the people. And it's just a matter of getting that into the public arena in as quick a time as possible, but not so quick. People ask how to move on so quickly. And the next subject for this episode is lockdown. This is in the Telegraph. Only now are the appalling costs of the pandemic becoming clear. Who knew? Nearly three and a half years after COVID-19 first appeared on the scene, the World Health Organization has declared the pandemic officially over. And there we all were thinking it had ended more than a year ago when the UK and much of the rest of Europe abandoned the last of their COVID restrictions. Late to recognise COVID as a pandemic, the WHO has also been late to acknowledge that that thanks in large measure to Western medicines and vaccines, it is also now essentially part of history. Perhaps that's because of the continued influence of China, which only very recently abandoned zero COVID policy. As long as a major economy was still imprisoning its citizens at the slightest sign of infection, then I suppose it was indeed hard to declare the disease and no longer a public health emergency. For most of us, the pandemic has nevertheless been over for a long time. The grimly dispiriting legacy is, however, still very much with us. In the UK, the national debt is a fifth of GDP higher than it was. Inflation has soared to double digits. Economically suboptimal work from home remains deeply entrenched. Labour shortages abide, and many people still complain of long-term sickness, much of it unrelated to COVID as such, but seemingly triggered by the pandemic's deprivations with the record numbers claiming out-of-work benefits. The government's response to COVID always looked to me like a ruinous overreaction, and I became something of a lockdown sceptic. Well, this is a point I made at the time. This phrase, disproportionate response, any response to a virus that doesn't exist, just like all the others, is disproportionate. The only proportionate response is nothing. So the phrase, disproportionate response, reinforces the idea that there is something to respond to and there needs to be some response therefore when the truth is what we should have done is nothing because there was nothing to do anything about the article continues i say something of because in the initial stages of the pandemic call it that we're all going to die face something fairly dramatic was obviously called for watching the tv images of emergency hospitals being built in wuhan and overwhelmed icu units in northern italy those emergency hospitals just like emergency hospitals here in britain which were closed after seeing basically nobody and very quickly closed Politically, the article says it would have been virtually impossible for the UK to have stood alone in remaining open, even as virtually the whole of the rest of Europe was closing down. The government would have fallen within weeks if it had stood by and done nothing, even though that is exactly what it should have done. Nothing. Just the same as every other government in the world. Even Sweden, which seems to have got its approach about right, eventually implemented a watered-down version of the restrictions imposed elsewhere. Instinctively, Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister, was against lockdown, preferring instead the idea of herd immunity, but then he became seriously ill himself and ended up fully embracing the made-in-China response. The Chinese response was the template and was designed to be the template. That's why the response was what it was. And very quickly, the virus disappeared in China and it was back to normal. They were throwing parties in China because they said the virus 
was no longer there. It had gone in no time because it was never there in the first place. Anyone remember the images out of China of people dropping dead in the street? Anyone remember seeing that in the West with the same virus? It was all part of the psychology in those early days. And Ted Ross, I don't know, the director of the World Health Organization, owned by Bill Gates, is the biggest funder. Ted Ross was an executive of a Bill Gates organization called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, before he became World Health Organization director general. He said about the Chinese response, the Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak. China is actually setting a new standard for outbreak response, and it is not an exaggeration. The Chinese response being seen as the way to respond to this virus was crucial to the hoax being successful. The article continues. Some, such as the former Supreme Court judge Lord Sumption, who would regularly warn of police state authoritarianism, the objection was on principled libertarian grounds. This was, however, very much a minority position. One of the most remarkable things about the whole sorry affair is quite how compliant the country proved and how quickly we succumbed to instruction. Somewhat alarmingly, it turned out that supposedly freedom-loving societies are remarkably willing to submit to authoritarian rule, especially if paid to stay at home, as was the case with furlough in the UK. Even the government was surprised by the obedience was not seen as the economic impact and once the case mortality rate was confirmed at less than one percent for advanced economies the lack of proportionality and cost benefit consideration i can never quite accept the argument that what was being done was similar to putting the economy into a medically induced coma with the patient reawoken as if nothing had happened once the pandemic was over as we can now see the lasting damage was monumental it would no doubt have been disastrous had the health service been overwhelmed, but when the main justification for the lockdown became the rallying call to protect the NHS, you have to ask yourself what the whole thing was really all about. Insulating the health service from the sickness it is there to treat. But see, the thing is that hospitals are empty, and people who were suffering from other conditions and illnesses that actually exist, they were told to stay at home. And now, as a result of that, there's an enormous backlog. The article continues, you cannot put a price on life, it can be argued, and therefore almost any cost is justified, if there was a virus. It is also true that in the fog of war, mistakes are bound to be made, overreaction is possibly better than underreaction. Well, when the virus does not exist, then the only measures that are justified are no reaction. All the same, the article continues, it now seems abundantly clear that the treatment was in many ways worse than the disease itself. We'll never know the counterfactual of just how many lives were saved by imposing a strict series of lockdowns. Most epidemiologists will tell you that it was a lot, but they are not paid to think about the wider consequences, and it is now patently clear that the lasting damage to education, the economy, and the wider public health was off the scale. What are the lessons? We don't need to wait for the results of the official inquiry, still years away, to know some of the answers. Let's make a start by examining the death toll reported on a daily basis during the pandemic, as if in some kind of international competition for how effectively each country was dealing with the crisis. For a long time, Britain seemed to be bottom of the class, which in turn instructed the severity of the countermeasures thrown necessary. The worse the numbers looked relative to others, the more draconian and prolonged the restrictions became. Given differing methodologies and reporting systems, the best way of measuring the impact is not through recorded deaths from COVID, but via the excess death rate over and above what would normally be expected. 
On this measure, most major advanced economies ended up in much the same place. What we know now is that lockdown was an extraordinarily costly way of dealing with a pandemic. It is to be hoped that this lesson at least has been learned and that the response to future pandemics will therefore be better calibrated to the severity of the disease. A 1% case mortality rate scarcely seems to justify what was done, even if it was admittedly much higher in order age cohorts. A more consensual approach that keeps people properly informed but allows them to make their own choices on the degree of risk they are prepared to run must be the way forward. And there's another article here in the Telegraph on the same subject. Lockdown benefits are dropping the bucket compared to the costs of landmark study funds. Lockdown saved as few as 1,700 lives in England and Wales in spring 2020, according to a landmark study which concludes the benefits of the policy were a drop in the bucket compared to the staggering collateral costs imposed. That's if you believe there ever was a virus in the first place. Scientists from Johns Hopkins University and Lund University examined almost 20,000 studies on measures taken to protect populations against COVID across the world. Their findings suggest that lockdowns in response to the first wave of the pandemic, when compared with less strict policies adopted by the likes of Sweden, prevented as few as 1,700 deaths in England and Wales. In an average week, there are around 11,000 deaths in England and Wales. The report authors said their findings show that the draconian measures had a negligible impact on COVID mortality and were a policy failure of gigantic proportions. Well, it depends on how you see the response to COVID. If you think they, the government took those measures to protect people, then because they thought it was the best thing for the country, then it can seem like a colossal failure. But if you know that the damage they've done economically financially uh, in terms of businesses and mental health and all these things are the reason those measures were taken then it was a it was a very great success because it those measures achieved what they were imposed to do Johns Hopkins is one of the most respected medical schools in the world and became known during the pandemic for its COVID dashboard measuring cases and deaths all over the world. The study's authors conclude, the science of lockdowns is clear, the data are in, the deaths saved were a drop in the bucket compared to the staggering collateral costs imposed. The key point is, the staggering collateral costs imposed are why those measures were and restrictions were imposed. All the devastation was the plan. The article continues. The detrimental impact of a lockdown on children's health and education, on economic growth and its contribution to a large increase in public debt, has become increasingly clear since the policy was introduced. However, the Telegraph recently revealed that a secretive government unit worked with social media companies during the pandemic in an attempt to curtail criticism of controversial lockdown policies. This is all the censorship that we saw. The COVID disinformation unit monitors social media and asked tech companies to remove posts it considered to be potentially harmful content, harmful to the agenda. Britain's first lockdown in March 2020 was introduced on the basis of modelling exercises from Professor Neil Ferguson, which had predicted there could be more than half a million deaths in the UK without action to stop the spread of the virus. His research has suggested that even with mitigations such as social distancing and household quarantines for COVID cases, there could be at least a quarter of a million deaths unless further measures were taken. And he then said that he'd massively overestimated it. The policy was already in place by then. The new study on the impact of lockdowns is published in a report by the Institute of Economic Affairs. Across Europe, countries which embarked on lockdown saw 6,000 fewer deaths than if they had embarked on a less draconian approach, while the US could 
have seen 4,000 fewer deaths, they conclude. By contrast, modelling by Professor Ferguson and his colleagues from Bill Gates-funded Imperial College London in March 2020 have predicted that without action, the UK could see 510,000 deaths from COVID with 2.2 million in the United States. After lockdown was imposed, the scientists suggested that intense social distancing and other interventions now in place could reduce that figure to 20,000 in the UK. The COVID inquiry is set to examine the government's decision-making during the pandemic, but it has already been the subject of significant criticism relating to its speed, scope and transparency. Researchers for the Johns Hopkins study said the findings showed that lockdowns have been a global policy failure of gigantic proportions. Co-author Dr. Lars Jonen, Professor Emeritus at the Network Cell Center for Financial Studies at Sweden's Lund University, said the study was the first to fully evaluate the impact of mandatory restrictions. He said it demonstrates that lockdowns were a failed promise. They had negligible health effects, but disastrous economic, social and political costs to society. Most likely lockdowns represent the biggest policy mistake in modern times. But it wasn't a mistake because it achieved what it was meant to achieve. The article continued. Professor Stephen H. Hanke, co-author and professor of Applied Economics and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health and a Study of Business Enterprise at Johns Hopkins University said, when it comes to COVID, epidemiological models have many things in common, dubious assumptions, hair-raising predictions of disaster that missed the mark and few lessons learned. The researchers examined 19,646 potentially relevant studies, selecting 22 with standardized measures from meta-analysis. They used two approaches to examine the impact of lockdown. The first described as stringency index studies, examined the difference between harsher lockdowns and more voluntary measures. This found the difference in mortality amounted to just 3.2% or 1,700 deaths in England and Wales, compared with countries such as Sweden, which relied more on voluntary social changes. Even when a broader definition of lockdown was used, combining the impact of specific interventions to allow for the fact countries embarked on different measures, the estimates suggest that if only it only reduced COVID deaths by 10.7%. This amounts to 6,000 deaths in England and Wales, 23,000 deaths in Europe, and 16,000 in the United States. During the first wave over this period, there were 74,000 in England and Wales. Well, there were deaths, but they were not caused by COVID. While business closures were associated with 7.5% fall in COVID mortality, gathering limits such as the rule of six were linked to an increase in COVID death rates of 5.9%. Other interventions, such as the use of face coverings, which were not pushed in Britain until the end of the first wave, were found to be relatively effective, where they were used cutting deaths by 18.7%. Well, they can only be effective if there was a virus, and there's an enormous amount of scientific literature which concludes that masks are useless, not least because the pores in the mask are bigger than viral particles, even if you believe they exist anyway. The article continues, researchers said more research was needed, including to examine the impact of masks on welfare to answer the question of whether mask mandates were a desirable policy. I talk about masks in great detail in the new book, as I do COVID hoax in general, over three lengthy chapters. Uh, the report's authors said their estimate of 1,700 deaths prevented by the first lockdown was far less than those of a typical flu season, which was, has between 18,524 and 1,800 deaths. Some people say that COVID was the flu. Well, the flu is another virus, just like all the rest that has never been proven to exist. But the flu symptoms redesignated as COVID, yes. And even then, it's just the body trying to get out of itself what shouldn't be in there. Not viruses, but other material. 
The article continues, Jonas Herbig, co-author of the study and special advisor at the Center for Political Studies, an independent classical liberal think tank based in Copenhagen, Denmark, said numerous misleading studies driven by subjective models and overlooking significant factors like voluntary behavior changes heavily influenced the initial perception of lockdowns as highly effective measures. Our meta-analysis suggests that when researchers account for additional variables such as voluntary behavior, the impact of lockdowns becomes negligible. How can it be anything else when there never was a virus in the first place? COVID fake vaccine. In my new book, Reality Check, I make a very clear distinction between three groups of people throughout human history to present day. What I call normal people, a normal mind, really, and really is what I'm saying, but a questioning person and an awakening person. And a normal person, I contend in the book, and don't have a mind of their own, and they don't question. End of story. A normal person thinks what they're told to think, and therefore does what they're told to do. A questioning person questions, obviously, but only to an extent. So they can get to a point where they can see that humanity is manipulated, and that there is a global cult, a global network, elite, cabal, however you want to describe it, within a, a nightmare agenda for humanity, and they can see the steps towards that agenda unfolding, and they can see the lies of authority and ever more dystopian nature of human society. But they can only go so far. Any further, and you hear the classic phrase, I can't get my head around it. Now, sometimes this is said because it's true, and other times it's said because, for whatever reason, they don't want to be seen to be questioning a certain subject, or certainly a subject to a certain extent. They might question some of the subject, for example, during the COVID hoax, which I examine over three lengthy chapters in Reality Check. They may see manipulation of the data, they may see flaws in the testing, which informs the, uh, or rather creates the, the data in terms of figures and, and the numbers. And they may see the consequences of the fake, and it is fake, as I explained in Reality Check, COVID vaccine. But to suggest that there is no virus, never was, explain in great depth in reality check no viruses ever actually is too far for a questioning person and then there's awakening people notice i say awakening not awakened because there's always more to awaken to and an awakening person knows that whatever they know is only what they know at any point an awakening person can see all of it they can see the whole panorama they have no perceptual limits and, and they will say what they know and what they perceive to be the truth without any concern for how people will receive it. And they are also willing to push back against authority when they can see that authority is trying to take their freedom for the sake of taking their freedom, which is what we saw with the COVID hoax under, under the guise of we want to protect you from a virus which even if it existed was nothing to do with protecting people and everything to do with controlling people. 
both psychologically and physically. And the COVID hoax was a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It was the litmus test, the acid test for where any given person is perceptually. What a lot of normal people do, not all of them, some normal people may think what is being said is ridiculous, but they'll keep that to themselves. They don't want to start an argument or mock anyone. But some people do, as was evidenced during the COVID hoax. Here's a clip of a comedian. I don't know who it is. I found a clip on Twitter, a video clip. I wasn't able to find a name. There was no name in the tweet or any of the comments, so I don't know who it is. But this is so classic. And of course, other comedians did this as well. Russell Howard being one of them that comes to mind. Jimmy Carr, another one. And they will all be clueless what the consequences are of what they say. So here's the clip. We all went a little nuts during COVID. We all went a little nuts. It's okay. We all, some people went more nuts than others. You know, heard some crazy shit like masks don't work. Really? All right, have your dentist cough into your mouth. <laughs> Get yourself a freedom flu, you know what I mean? That'll be fun. Last year when the vaccine came out, there's a lot of debate over it, which is good. We should, you know, have questions about the vaccine. I get it, you know. But I see all these comedians that I've known for years on social media, like, I'm not putting that into my body. I worked with you in Vegas in the 90s. I saw you do blow off a stripper's ass, okay? You can handle a little Moderna, you know what I'm saying? You having a comedy club pizza? Yeah, you can handle... Trust The idiocy in that clip from that unknown comedian is beyond words, and his ignorance is mirrored by so many in the general population. Of course, making fun of the idea that masks, the claim that masks don't work, can he provide a single scientific study proving that they do work? Can governments who imposed masks and public places which imposed masks and people like Professor Susan Mikey, a behavioural psychologist who pushed for masks, present a single scientific study proving that masks work. No, I didn't think so. Because it's not about what is scientifically true, it's what government and authority can get people to believe is, and the media can get people to believe is the truth. The even officially acknowledged consequences of the COVID fake vaccine, including myocarditis and heart problems of other kinds, will be completely unknown to that unknown comedian and much of the general population. Normal people, questioning and awakening people will be aware, but normal people won't, because all they can do is just take what they're told, and they have no capacity to think anything other than what they're told. COVID was a wonderful case study for that. I think I can say without any fear or contradiction that there has never been a better case study in human history. So this is this perfectly safe COVID vaccine 
This is in the New York Times. CDC, this is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in America, is investigating rare heart problems after COVID fake vaccines. The FDA told Johnson & Johnson that 60 million doses can't be used because they might have been contaminated. The WHO set a target for countries to inoculate 10% of their populations by September. Africa is likely to fall short. The CDC is investigating nearly 800 cases of rare heart problems following immunisation. And that is only the cases that have been reported. It's estimated that only about anywhere from 10 to 1%, and it will be closer to 1% with the COVID vaccine, uh, are ever reported for any vaccine. And with all the pressure on doctors not to report consequences of the COVID vaccine, it will be closer to 1%. So, you know, that 800 is only potentially 1% of the real number in America alone. The FDA tells Johnson & Johnson that about 60 million doses made at a troubled plant cannot be used. Leaders of the G7 nations will offer plans to bring the pandemic to an end. ER visits following suspected suicide attempts rose among US teen girls during the pandemic. This was published in May 2022, but it's worth looking at now. Italy halts the use of AstraZeneca's vaccine in under-60s and other news from around the world. Federal officials are reviewing nearly 800 cases of rare heart problems following immunisation with the coronavirus fake vaccines made by Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, according to data presented at a vaccine safety meeting. Not all of the cases are likely to be verified or related to vaccines and experts believe the benefits of immunisation far outweigh the risk of these rare complications. Only if there is a virus. If there's not, then it's all downsides. The article continues, but the reports have worried some researchers more than half of the heart problems were reported in people aged 12 to 24, while the same age group accounted for only 9% of the millions of doses administered. We clearly have an imbalance there, said Dr. Tom Shimabukuro, a vaccine expert at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention who presented the data. Advisors to the agency will meet to explore the potential links to the complications, myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis, inflammation of the membrane surrounding the heart. About two-thirds of the cases were in young males with a median age of 30 years. The numbers are higher than would be expected for that age group, officials said, but have not yet been definitively linked to the vaccines. As of May 31st, 216 people had experienced myocarditis or pericarditis after one dose of either vaccine and 573 after the second dose. Most cases have been mild, but 15 patients remain in hospitals. The second dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, fake vaccine, was linked to about twice as many cases as the second dose of the fake vaccine made by Moderna. There were 79 reported cases of the heart problems among those 16 or 17 years old, compared with a maximum of 19 cases expected for that group. And in the group of young people aged 18 to 24, there were 196 cases compared with an expected maximum of 83. But the true incidence may be lower, Dr. Shimabukuro said. Immunizations of younger teenagers began only last month, so this is April 2022, and data from that age group in particular are limited. And this is a more recent article, this is July 2023, this is in the Daily Mail. Harvard and Yale scientists investigate a new condition dubbed Long Vax, debilitating suite of symptoms linked to COVID shock that last month and resembled Long COVID, but scientists stress it's extremely rare and benefits of vaccination outweigh risk. It's always rare, isn't it? It's so rare 
that a lot of people suffer from it. Scientists are investigating a new condition believed to be caused by COVID vaccination, double long vax. Experts at Harvard and Yale are studying the debilitating suite of problems that appear hours, days or weeks after getting a shot but can persist for months. Experts stress the condition is extremely rare, relatively mild compared to severe COVID and that the benefits of vaccination likely outweigh the risks. For example, getting vaccinated significantly lowers the risk of long COVID if there is a COVID. They do not want the issue to be seized upon by the anti-vax movement that has gained momentum during the pandemic. Patients with so-called long vax appear to suffer symptoms similar to long COVID, including headaches, intense tiredness, and abnormal heart rate and blood pressure. However, some symptoms appear unique to the vaccine-induced conditions, such as tingling, burning pain, and blood circulation issues. The true number of people affected is not yet known, but anecdotally, doctors are seeing dozens of patients coming in with symptoms that align with the condition. Dr. Harlan Krumholtz, a cardiologist at Yale, is leading a study of around 2,000 people into the issue. He admits it is controversial because the COVID vaccines have saved millions of lives. Evidence for that? Uh, none. And studies show the jabs also lower the risk of long... Where is it? If there is, show me it. And studies show the jabs also lower the risk of long COVID by around a third, making the issue even more nuanced. Again, show me the evidence. And the first thing you need to do is prove that the virus exists, which has never been done. So show me the virus exists before I even entertain looking at that evidence. And I'm not talking about people getting ill, I'm talking about scientific evidence. For comparison, long COVID is relatively common with one in eight adults who get infected with the virus. How do you determine who's infected with the virus? PCR test, which the inventor said cannot be used to detect whether you're sick or not. And if you use the test in a certain way, as I detail in the new book, then you can find almost anything in anybody, the inventor said. Uh, with one in eight adults who get infected with the virus suffering symptoms months after clearing the acute illness, according to the CDC. The huge benefit of COVID vaccination and the toxic anti-vax movement has left scientists uncomfortable about speaking up about long vax, according to Dr. Krumholtz, who includes himself in that. And speaking of vaccine consequences, in reality check, I look at and the final subject for this episode is sex education this is in the daily mail 12 year olds are being taught about anal sex in school while nine-year-olds are told to masturbate for homework the shocking lesson plans used by teachers in uk classrooms School children are being taught about anal sex and orgasms before they have reached puberty and sex masturbation as homework secretive lesson plans reveal. Many teachers are indoctrinating children with scientifically false claims about biological sex, presenting gender as fluid and furthering a narrative that people can be born in their own body. It comes as the NHS is facing a mass legal action from 1,000 families who claim their children were rushed in, into taking life-changing puberty blockers by the Tavistock Centre. Men Online has found graphic teaching material, including a sex manual for pre-teens, being taught to children in classes around the UK. It follows a concerned mother being denied the right to see the content of the lessons being taught to her 15-year-old daughter in her relationships and sex education classes which became compulsory three years ago. Despite a judge refusing Claire Page the right to see the material, men online can reveal that a wealth of questionable teaching resources are already available online. We're seeing parents 
being denied more and more of a say over what happens with their children and the agenda as i've said before is that in the end the state will bring up children as aldous huxley talked about in brave new world and i'll get into that in more detail later uh, coloring books word searches and cartoon drawings have also been given to young girls and boys by activist teachers in their overarching mission to sexualize children in the name of inclusion since September 2020, relationships education has been compulsory in primary schools and RSC mandatory in secondary schools. The change left many teaching staff seeking guidance. The void was filled by charities, some harboring unconventional views on biological sex, sharing material on their websites that references underage sex. Mail Online can reveal that some children are taught that from birth until the age of one babies can experience pleasurable sensations by touching their genitals given ways for 12 year old girls to orgasm while masturbating including pinching or stroking the clitoris given masturbation homework from a pre-compulsory RSC resource told that girls as young as 12 can find sexual pleasure from anal, vaginal and oral sex taught that it's normal to want to masturbate during and even before they hit puberty informed that it's normal for prepubescent children to be sexually attracted to anyone, told that gender Gender is different from sex but is a much more intrinsic part of who a person is, taught that people can change their sex from being a man to being a woman, also taught that some non-binary humans are neither man nor woman, and finally taught that men with a male white chromosome can actually be women. So it's not about what is scientifically true and biologically true, it's about the programming which is what schools are there for as I have said many times. The Sex Education Forum, Coram Life Education and Brooke are some of the leading charities that create le- But now it's becoming more obvious than ever that that is the case. The Sex Education Forum, Coram Life Education and Brooke are some of the leading charities that create lesson plans for schools, hold PSHE, Personal Social Health Evaluation, I think that stands for, workshops and point teachers towards related educational material. Quorum Life Education supports 50,000 teachers. Their PSHE education reaches more than 600,000 pupils each year. Meanwhile, SEF states on its own website that it has a long history of successfully influencing policy. Some teachers and educators believe RSC and relationships education are necessary subjects for children to learn. A trainee teacher at a multi-academy trust in South East London who teaches RSC three times a week in 20-minute sessions said it was vital for it to be compulsory for children to learn about sex and relationships yes but in a way that is commensurate with their age he said schools have a role outside of family and religious groups to teach it informed by science the kids need to know it teaching about gender is important in a scientific and biologically factual factually correct way yes the quote continues many schools think RSC is secondary teachers want resources given to them the issue is that the resources are not good enough maybe we need a firm curriculum if it's left up to private groups then potentially different schools give different RSE the article continues yet others disagree psychotherapist Ray Freeman told Man Online we need to let children be children what I fear is more of a political movement where we have classes of girls saying there are a different sex sex is biological gender is socially constructed the aggressive movement is mixing the two it's dangerous has the world gone mad I think it is psychologically damaging and it can be physically damaging for a young person to be told they are or can be the opposite sex we have a duty to protect our children how can we if you don't know what they are being taught article continues the family 
Education Trust's Lucy Marsh told Mad Online activist teachers were on a path to rip children from their families. She said, it's an overarching mission to sexualise children in the name of inclusion. If you normalise underage sex to children, it's grooming and exposing them to sexual abuse. It's a mission to sexualise children and people don't understand there's a huge safeguarding risk in that. It's, a, it's child indoctrination. When you think of cults, the first thing they do is separate people from families. They are trying to put a distance between children and their families. Mrs. Marsh has had personal experience of her child being taught shocking sexual material. She said, my daughter came home and asked if she was asexual. I said, well, I hope you are because you're 11. Children come home and become very upset about it. We need a full public inquiry into the Department of Education. A lot of these providers are sanctioning underage sex. We would like the government to press pause on RSE lessons until this investigation is over. So what is the connection between COVID, electric cars, AI, aliens, technology and sex education? The cult's agenda seeks a synthetic human. The COVID fake vaccines are contributing to this agenda by inserting synthetic genetic material into the body. Gender studies and sex education pushes the no gender agenda transgender is a transition to no gender the plan is for a biological synthetic human which can more easily merge with technology and artificial intelligence the plan is to irradiate our world with the extremely dangerous 5g and eventually 6g 7g and other forms of electromagnetic technological radiation to the point where the natural biological human body would not be able to cope but the partly synthetic body can man of the people elon musk is planning to send up to 20,000 if not 40,000 satellites to beam 5g and beyond at the earth from space to cover every inch of the planet with hazardous electromagnetic fields to create the smart grid cloud to which the human mind and body is planned to be attached. The plan is to replace the human mind with artificial intelligence. I talk about the true nature of this AI in Reality Check. The smart grid is part of the Great Reset fronted up by cult frontman Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. The smart grid technology relies on at least 5G and is planned to create a level of surveillance never seen before where everything including thoughts are surveilled and tracked by AI. This technology already exists and has existed for a long time. Big Brother is watching indeed and then you ask what is the true nature of this Big Brother? Well it's a form of AI which I describe in the new book. The means through which that AI is watching is the smart grid technology. The Great Reset and Smart Grid Agenda see the introduction of 15-minute cities, which we're seeing appearing now in Britain, not least in Oxford. The ULES scheme of Rishi Sunak is all part of this. And in Bristol, now where I live, there's a clean air zone where you have to pay to enter in a car. But if you take public transport, you don't. The cult want an end to private travel as I've said many times before. I talk about this no-car 15-minute city agenda in episode 89. 
The cult want rid of private travel so they can control access to travel to control access to the basics of life, in which travel is a fundamental part. If you control what people are dependent on, you control them. The idea behind central bank digital currencies is that people who venture beyond their designated zone without permission will be fined. And whereas in the past, you would get a letter through the post and you might then decide to not pay the fine because you believe you were within your rights to travel beyond the zone or to do whatever it was you or not do whatever it was you're being fined for. What we're seeing the introduction of now, central bank digital currencies, or part of this cashless society that's planned, you won't have that option because the money will be deducted from your bank account with you having no say in the matter. The cashless society agenda is a trap. It's about total control. Another part of the cult's agenda is to break countries up into compartmentalised sectors to make them easier to control, in which every sector will have a different specialisation. The fake alien invasion would be hoaxed to justify a world government and world army structure and militarised police force. And the world government would dictate to these former countries, now compartmentalised regions. We're seeing the pieces being moved into place to introduce the very agenda that people like me and the alternative media on the internet have been predicting for decades. An unprecedented number of people worldwide now are finally seeing the reality of humanity's situation and plight since the COVID era. I've been on this road now for 17 years and have never seen anything like it. There are still others, however, who don't see it and they can go on kidding themselves that the agenda that I've outlined in this podcast and in my books since 2018 is just a theory while it unfolds all around them. The good news is we have enough people now who can see the reality and enough people to overturn this planned nightmare, but only some of them are willing to stand up and refuse to acquiesce with their own enslavement while others who can see it are too afraid of authority to contribute themselves. We need those people to join those who are willing to do that and then we can bring this situation to an end finally. It's just a choice and we clearly don't have much time to make it. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contesting connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.